Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Thirty-second context. This book, where we are in this book, if we could summarize it in just thirty seconds, the first ten chapters develop Jesus as the faithful, perfect, absolute, superior, supreme high priest, who not only is high priest, but who made an offering of himself that was also the perfect offering. And in light of who he is and what he's done. We then, the Hebrews church, Crosspoint church, believers in this century, believers in that century, should be faithful to do these things. We are in the middle of some of these things here in chapter 13. This morning, we're only going to be looking at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 13. And what, let me just kind of explain to you what I plan to do this morning. I usually do this if you've, if this is your first time and you're not familiar with uh, you wouldn't be familiar with it if it's your first time, but if you've been here a few times, you're trying to make sense of what we usually do. We usually disassemble a passage and then try and apply it. That's what we believe biblical preaching is. I don't really have any funny emails or stories to share. Um, topical preaching has a place, but we typically are expositional in our preaching where we are exposing what a passage says and then applying what it says to our lives. So the exposition, I was thinking it's almost like a surgeon, but a surgeon is actually sort of maybe taking something out or fixing something. This may be more like a biologist, this dissecting something. We're going to dissect it, and we're going to seek to apply what we found as we dissect it. So I'm just going to dissect in these next few minutes, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 13, and then we're going to look at four ways that we can walk in what we've exposed. So first the dissection, and then four applications. I'll give you a little heads up about where we're going scripturally. If you want to jot these passages down, the last passage will be in Habakkuk, so you may need the next 20 minutes, 30 minutes to try and find Habakkuk. So I'm giving you a little heads up. Uh, Hebrews 13, obviously, is where we're beginning. Matthew 6, we'll touch a couple times this morning, so you can put a bookmark in Matthew 6. Psalms 73 and 23, Psalms 73 and 23, and one of those is negotiable, and I've asked the Holy Spirit to lead me in whether we go to both or not, and a lot has to do with how your kids are doing. So I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to give me a sense of of how you're doing in the the seats this morning. And then uh, 1 Timothy 6 and then Habakkuk. So 1 Timothy 6 and then Habakkuk. Let's Start first with our passage, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. In light of Christ as superior high priest, as superior sacrifice, continue to run the race with endurance and keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? First of all, these phrases, keep your life free and be content, are both imperatival clauses. I introduced that word these last couple of weeks because as we're in chapter 13, there are a lot of imperatives, what we might call commands. They would be places that you would put 
you would appropriately put an exclamation point. So in my Bible, or in my notes anyway, I have an exclamation point after keep your life free from the love of money, like exclaiming that, keep it free with emphasis, and then an exclamation point after be content with what you have. Be content with what you have with emphasis. Both are fitting to have exclamation points after each of those clauses. Now, the love of money, it's translated here in the ESV, in, uh, I believe it's in New American Standard as well, as the love of money. The word there is the word covetousness. If I were to define the word as it's, as it's fitting in this context, it would be wanting what you don't have. The encouragement here is keep your lives free from wanting things you don't have. Keep your lives free from going after things that you don't currently own would be the context of what we're looking at here. If we were to translate the passage directly, it would be without covetousness, the behavior. That's what it would say. Without covetousness, the behavior. It's an interesting follow-up to what sits right in front of this passage, a passage that we didn't preach last week because we dealt with it a few weeks ago, dealing with marriage and dealing with sexual immorality. But what you will frequently see together in the Scripture is sexual immorality and covetousness because they go together. Throughout our Scriptures, going back all the way to the Ten Commandments, you see adultery or the, the commandment against adultery, and then you see theft right after that, a commandment against theft which is driven by covetousness. And then later you see an entire commandment dedicated to the issue of covetousness. And throughout the scriptures, you see sexual immorality and covetousness go together because they both deal with what we might call a selfishness profile. I want what I see, and whatever the cost, I'm going to take it. You're putting your needs and your desires above all others. And what we might do, we might just kind of illustrate this concept, this profile, whether it's coveting your neighbor's wife or coveting your neighbor's car, the selfishness profile is one who's looking over the neighbor's fence. We're going to go back to that over and over this morning. One who's looking over the neighbor's fence and saying, I want that. And he might be talking about the neighbor's house. He might be talking about the neighbor's car. He might be talking about the neighbor's wife. That's at heart what's going on here. And the discouragement is, or the encouragement is, don't be like this person looking over the neighbor's fence. Instead, be the opposite of covetousness. Be content with what you have. That's the encouragement here. A discouragement against being covetous and encouragement encouragement to be content with what you have, to be content with where you are. One of the things I want you to consider before we really explore this for a few minutes is just consider that here contentment is commanded. The realization that in, if we go back to the Greek and we see this imperatible force here, this commandment, exclamation point, be content then it should strike you as unusual because contentment is thought to be something that a few rare people stumble upon. But here for Christians, contentment is commanded. It made me think about a, an old Puritan's writing, a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, written by Jeremiah Burroughs, a favorite of many of us at Crosspoint. 
a very difficult read, but a very worthwhile read. But just in the title itself, it should tell you something. That even for Christians, even for a Puritan, it seems contentment was rare. A rare jewel. Why is it so rare? Here, a few hundred years later, after Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this. Why is it so rare 2,000 years later, after we're reading what was written by the Hebrews preacher? Because there is a profound force working against it in every single one of us. All of us are subject to this, this covetousness, this desire to have what or to want, this wanting what we don't have can affect and often does every single one of us like gravity. No one is off limits wanting what we don't have. The encouragement here for the Hebrews church, though, is don't look over the neighbor's fence. Instead, sit around and take some stock of the many blessings that you are surrounded with on your side of the fence. The row of kids that you have sitting next to you or the ones that you have over there or the ones that are grown up and out of the house and doing their own family thing. The wife or the husband that's sitting next to you or the friends that may be sitting next to you. The health that you may be enjoying, maybe even for a moment, taking stock of all the blessings that you have, where you are with that man. Yes, that man, ladies. With that woman. Yes, that woman, men. A commandment to be content with what you have, where you are with this stuff in this place. It's what's being encouraged right here. What's being commanded, in fact. One of the things I enjoy about the Hebrews preacher is this guy, I think of him almost like you know, some of our, our gals, and I, I share this affectionately, ladies, are really into essential oils. I promise you I'm not going to make fun of you. I promise you. I, I might a little bit. But the, the, the gals that are into essential oils, man, you talk to them about anything. I have a headache. Oh, there's an oil for that. Like, really? Okay, um, well, I have um, a toothache. There's an oil for that. I have a, a, um, an ingrown toenail. There's an oil for that. I have the bubonic plague. Well, there's an oil for that. <laughs> I lost my, my, my finger. Well, there's an oil for that. The thing that I enjoy about the attitude and the mindset of the essential oils, ladies, is they're a lot like the mindset of this Hebrews preacher. He has a scripture for that. Every single malady, he takes them to Old Testament in that date and time. The Gospels were likely written, but he didn't have a whole lot of resources other than the Old Testament, especially for a Jewish Christian church. And he takes them to Scripture like essential oils, placing just the right, and I promise you, I'm not mocking you, I use them, but just one of them at bedtime. Cedarwood, answer to my prayers. But here he is treating their maladies with some scripture. And the first phrase he says, for he has said, speaking of God, he has said, when he's given this, this charge, don't be covetous, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then so we can confidently say another scripture reference, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear What can man do to me? The first passage, the first reference here is likely found its beginnings in Genesis chapter 28. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to sort of summarize the story for you. But this little phrase is found, this little 
reference here that's not verbatim but very close is found many places throughout our Old Testament to include Deuteronomy chapter 1 before they go into the promised land, Joshua chapter 1 as they're going into the promised land and beginning the conquest, 1 Chronicles chapter 28 as uh, David is talking to Solomon, he reminds him of these words, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he's not talking about himself, he's talking about what God has said. Solomon, God will never leave you nor forsake you. But this passage likely found its beginnings here in Genesis chapter 28, where God is speaking through a dream to a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob, at this point in the story, he's left, he's duped his brother out of the birthright, and he's duped his father out of the blessing. So he's leaving with lots of stuff, lots of birthright and blessing. But for the most part, he's striking out on his own without his family. He's lost his family. He's on the lamb from his brother. He's off to find a wife. And little does he know the mess that that's going to be if you've read the story. And here in a dream, God tells him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God said this to Jacob. God said it to the saints over the ages. And here the Hebrews preacher is reminding a church that has the potential of being discontent that God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. One of the cool things that I enjoy is the, in the Greek, some things that are difficult to translate. In this passage, something that really should hit, should strike a, an emphatic note about this comment in this phrase. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If never isn't enough, if the fact that it wasn't shared over and over throughout our Old Testament story wasn't enough. In the Greek, there's some things that are drawn out. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but in the Greek, it reads, he himself has said this. And that is used in the Greek for emphasis. Here in our ESV, it just says, for he has said. But in the original language, it says, he himself has said it. God himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He didn't pass this through a messenger. You didn't hear tell that God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. God said directly, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He himself said this, and he said it with a Greek tense that we don't have in, our, in, a, in, in the English language. And it's a Greek tense called the perfect tense. God has said that word in the perfect tense. The perfect tense, let me explain it to you briefly. It's as if someone struck a note on a piano or a chord or something, on some instrument. A note that was struck at a point in time. They struck a bell. Let's use that. It might be easier to see. They strike a bell at a point in time, but the sound of it, the sound waves and the audible realization that that sound is still going never stops. It's a perfect tense. It's as if it happened at a point in time, but it reverberates throughout the ages. God said what he said, and it reverberates throughout the ages into this point 2,000 years ago, and it's still sounding 2,000 years later as we can hear it yet this morning. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You hear it ringing? It's still ringing. This 2,000 years later, this 3,500 years later after Jacob, man, what a beautiful promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God said this so we can confidently say something. God has said something, so now we can confidently say, and here the 
Hebrews preacher takes them to Psalm 118 and Psalm 56, two places that use this very similar phrase. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, a few things to draw out here on this thing that we can confidently say. If we're to confidently say it, we need to understand it. First of all, a little context clue here for this phrase, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Why is the Hebrews preacher taking a people who are potentially becoming discontent? Who are potentially loving money, who could potentially love money, who need to be content with what they have. He's taking them to this place, this dealing with the loss of things through persecution. He's dealing with a people that just a few chapters earlier, it says in chapter 10 of Hebrews, recall the former days, Hebrews church. This context is important. Recall the former days, Hebrews church. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You, here it is. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is the context for this reference. This passage first has to do with confession in the context of persecution and a trust in the only thing that they could truly trust in, God. It's less about your physical stuff and more about what are you trusting in. I can only hope that this passage was built into the Egyptian Coptic church before a couple of weeks ago when 20 of them had their heads separated from their bodies. Man, I hope that this would be built into us, this concept, this confession of, of trust in the only thing that we can trust in, whether we face persecution or whether we face a temptation to look over the neighbor's fence. What can we trust in? What should we trust in? And this phrase, this beautiful phrase, just to break it down in three parts. The Lord is my helper. That's a confession. The confessor in Psalm 118 and Psalm 56, the two authors there. And then the Hebrews preacher brings this into his people. The confession is in the first line. The Lord is my helper. And then in the third line, we'll come back to the second. In the third line is the oppressor and the confessor. What can man, the oppressor, do to me? And then beautifully, fittingly in the second line is just the confessor saying with confidence in a God who helps, I will not fear. Because God has promised what he has promised, I will not fear. Because God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, I will not not fear. And the Hebrews preacher says, Hebrews church, we can say this with confidence. We can say this bravely is what that word means. We can say it courageously. We can say it boldly because God has said what he has said. We can say what we will say. I will not fear. Now, that's the dissection four applications for you this morning. First, we should work at not loving money. The tone of this passage, just hear it as we go back to it, keep your life free from the love of money. 
suggests that it's work to keep your life free of loving money. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is the first of two visits to Matthew chapter 6, and this one will be brief. As you're turning there, I just want to point out to you and develop this thought here in verse 5 of Hebrews. is that this, this effort to keep your life free of, the, free of the love of money sounds almost like money is magnetic. It sounds almost like money is viral and contagious, or the love for it and love of it is viral and contagious. There's the sense in what's being developed here that we should be proactive and even vigilant about keeping our lives free from the love of money. Look at verse 24 of chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus preaching. In chapter 6, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Some of you may be familiar with some more or some older versions of that that call money mammon. That's what Jesus said there. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon's not just shorthand for money. Mammon is a being, or at least the concept of a being, a lowercase g, g God. You cannot serve God, big G, God, and this lowercase g, mammon. Jesus here personifies money and the love of it as a being. Now, is it an actual being that's floating around that we can't see, some sort of spiritual being or demon? I don't know, but I know that Jesus presented it like it takes on a life of its own. Like it's hunting you down and prowling around like a roaring lion. Like it has an identity as one who wants to be served. See, realize in that passage, he called it a master. No one can serve two masters, for either he will love one and hate the other. He's talking about one of those masters being mammon. This thing wants to be served. It wants your devotion Don't think of the love of money as some inanimate, some idle reality. It is an active force that is pursuing you. I want you to consider this in light of this. I was thinking about this over the course of the week. If you really love something, you will sacrifice for it. If you really love a hobby, you will likely sacrifice through putting expense into that hobby. If you love a person, you will likely sacrifice time or effort or money toward blessing that person or ministering to that person. Hopefully, love for you sacrifices. But I want you to think about this for a minute. If you find yourself making sacrifices for mammon, like the sacrifice of time with your family, if you find yourself making a sacrifice of your health for more of this stuff that you don't have, If you find yourself sacrificing involvement in the life of a church for mammon, for the sake of more of this stuff, then you are potentially potentially loving money and serving mammon. Now, I say potentially because you may just be in a very brief season. 
a very brief season that many of us have faced in our professional journeys, and I haven't always been in ministry. There were times where I was doing other jobs, and I understand those seasons. But realize if you find yourself frequently, characteristically, sacrificing very important things for more of this magnetic stuff, then you may very potentially be serving mammon instead of serving the Lord. What I would encourage a way to first go at not loving money would be to love the right things. I'm so thankful that here in this passage, if if you've already, you can stay in Matthew chapter 6. I'll go back to our passage in Hebrews and just share a little context with you. It's a passage we looked at the last couple of weeks. When we started chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That passage there deals with first, deals with Philadelphia, love for the brothers. The second deals with Philozenia, love for strangers. A great defense against loving money is to love the right things. Instead of just avoiding the wrong things, to pour yourself into loving the right things. Like loving the brothers and like loving the Christian Stranger, these things stand out in stark contrast to this love for money. And interestingly enough, that Greek word, the root for the love for money, is phyla. It stands out in contrast, beautiful contrast, to Philadelphia and Philozenia. Work at not loving money by loving the brothers and loving the Christian strangers and being all in in those directions. Another way that we can deal with the defense against loving money is the second application, to be content with what you have. We're going to talk about how here in just a moment. That sounds really easy just when you say it like that. But to be content with what you have is a charge from this passage. And it doesn't even sound like to be encouraged, being encouraged to get rid of a bunch of stuff. They're just being charged here with being content with where you are. Be content with the stuff that you have, the place that you are. And the Hebrews preacher apparently knows the desire for more stuff is just as magnetic as the desire for more money. He tells them not to love money, but rather to be content, giving them the answer to their contentment problem. A couple of little steps there that we just shared is love the brothers, love the Christian strangers, but here's the best step right here in chapter five, chapter 13, verse 5b. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What he gives them here to help them with their potential contentment problem is that he himself is the carrot. God himself is the treasure. God himself is the possession. He is the carrot. Just think about this for a minute. Do you see God that way or do you see him as a being that's really just a vehicle for you to get what stuff you really want? Or do you see him as the stuff that you really want? Two very different things. One is worship of God. The other is worship of yourself. Man, he is the carrot that's presented here. Don't love money. Be content with what you have, for he will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the carrot. He's the treasure. He's the possession. 
you find yourself looking over the neighbor's fence, wanting the neighbor's stuff, the neighbor's wife, the neighbor's house, whatever it is, virtual or real, the place where we should be looking, the solution for that problem is to look here and to look here and together take hold and apprehend what all we have in him. He is the treasure. He is the carrot. The psalmist had this figured out. Let's go to two psalms real briefly. We're going to go to both because the kids are doing so good. We're not going to spend a lot of time on either. First is Psalm 23. Very familiar psalm, but I want us to read it in light of God being the carrot, of God being the treasure, of God being the possession that we should be after in preventing the love of money and in being faithful to being content. This is a psalm of David. It's a familiar psalm to most. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Sounds like a pretty content worshiper at this point. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Is it the green pastures or is it him that this worshiper is content with? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Let's see how it continues. He leads me beside still waters. Is it the still waters and the green pastures that bring contentment? Or is it the he? Well, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He seems to be the center of this psalm. The enjoyment and contentment that this worshiper David has comes from God being God and him apprehending the greatness of God. It's not about the green pastures. It's not about the still waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Man, your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil because you are the carrot. You are the treasure. Man, think about the things that fuel us from day to day. Green pastures, still waters, one thing after another that we pursue God for. Are we pursuing him for his hand or are we pursuing him for his face? Are we pursuing him for what he will do for you or are you pursuing him for who he is? It's supposed to be as worshipers the latter and it's there that we find real, real contentment, steady contentment. The psalmist found it. Let's look at one other psalm, Psalm 73. This one's a treasure. They all are, but this one I really enjoy. It's nourished me over the years many times. It's such an honest psalm. Listen to what the psalmist says. This is Asaph. We call him as soon as possible in the McGraw house. He's really honest. Listen to what he says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I'm just going to be really honest with you, God, as I write this psalm. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I was looking over the fence. I was looking over the neighbor's fence, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it just undid me, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of us. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. He's just really honest about looking over the neighbor's fence. But thankfully, he didn't stick around at the neighbor's fence. Look at where he goes in verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this mess that I saw over the neighbor's fence, this inconsistency, this inequity, as I'm looking over the neighbor's fence, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I'm holding myself over the fence looking at all this discrepancy until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He left the fence and he went into the sanctuary of God. And here's what he found when he sought the Lord. Here's what he found. He's truly, you set them in slippery places. They look like everything's going their way and the wind is to their back. Fair winds and following seas. But they are actually in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in but a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They may strut their tongues throughout the earth, but you are not snoozing. You are paying attention. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph found contentment. He found it right there in that psalm. From start to finish, you hear this satisfaction. And it's not satisfying in the beginning. He's just really honest. But by the end of it, he's like, man, but I've got you. You are my portion. We sang it this morning. My portion is you. My portion is you. Oh, God. Now, here's a little tip for you. The psalmist, Asaph. It's just Asaph. You can see as soon as possible sitting, writing out that psalm all by himself. Psalm 23 is David. You see him just sitting writing that psalm all by himself. And that's the way we conceptualize working through things like contentment. We sit by ourselves and we work out that stuff with God, right? But as soon as possible, and David, they weren't writing those psalms only for themselves. Those psalms were sung by the nation of Israel for ages. They became our song. Our portion is you, O God, was how these things played out functionally. It's not just Asaph's answer. It's not just David's answer. It's the answer to contentment for the people of God. And the reality is you won't find contentment by yourself. I look over the neighbor's fence really well by myself. I do a good job of that when I'm by myself. But when I'm with God's people, it's there I find that contentment is a plural endeavor. I can only find it with other people. This, this verb here in Hebrews chapter 13, be content, is plural. Be content. And interestingly enough, your life is singular. Hebrews church, keep your life as if you just share it together, free from the love of money. 
And then plurally he says, but y'all be content because you can only do it together. You can only do it together. You try and pull this off by yourself, you will not find contentment. We can constantly say, I will never, he, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We can constantly say this. Covetousness takes place in the quiet recesses of my own heart, and I bet it does in you as well. But the reality is, together in community, like the song sung by the people, we will find contentment with what we have, him. Now, the third thing from this passage, or the third application that I'll take you to is do not fear. One of the things I've been struggling with this week or working through or laboring over is seeing the issue of contentment along with fear. I've never really put fear and the pursuit of contentment or covetousness in the same conversation, but here the Hebrews preacher is putting them together. Fear and contentment are related. Now here's one way that may be a possibility, and then there's a definite, but here's maybe. The fear of man may be connected to discontentment in some way. As you're looking at your neighbor thinking, if I don't have what he has, then people aren't going to like me as much as they like him. If, I'm not cont- if, if, I, if I get this stuff, this new car or this new house or this new thing, then maybe people will think I'm as cool as that person over there who has that stuff. So maybe there's a fear of man involved in there. A great read there, I've already referenced Jeremiah Burroughs, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Another great read that I've mentioned often is when people are big and God is small. A great read that will help you see if maybe you are seeing, if, if a fear of man is fueling the way you're moving. That's a possibility of what's going on here. But I think what's a definite, in a larger sense, that's going on here is the fear and anxiety that go along with trusting in the wrong thing. The fear and anxiety that go go along with trusting in mammon, it's like holding on to a handrail that you can tell and feel this joker's broken. It's going to go out any second, and I'm going to bite the dust. Fear and anxiety go, go along with trusting in the wrong things. F.F. Bruce, one of my commentators that I enjoy, said this, the chief pang, P-A-N-G, as in, A fancy way of saying pain, pang, which pierces the heart of the lover of money is growing anxiety because you're trusting in the wrong things. Man, let me encourage you to realize that we should fear and trust in the Lord alone. The fourth thing this morning is that we should have confidence in the Lord who helps Hopefully, you're still over there in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue reading right there after the verse we just read in verse 25. Again, we're still here on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is here preaching a very important sermon. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look instead at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than some birdies? Let that hit you for a minute. God tends to the birds. Are you not of more value than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these little old lilies. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Some beautiful realities come out of this passage. The encouragement and realization that God clothes things that are far less valuable than you. We can trust in a good God because we have a good God that helps. And he reminds them, I help out things that are far less valuable than you, like lilies and birdies and grass. Your heavenly Father knows what you need is the encouragement here. He is a handrail that is solid. He, unlike the fragile untrustworthy handrail of mammon is a handrail that is solid. The commit or the contentment that Christ is speaking of here, the contentment that Paul speaks of throughout his letters, the contentment that the Hebrew preacher speaks of isn't like a gypsy just wandering around in this sort of irresponsible improvidence. This contentment comes from a conscious trust in a God who helps an intentional trust in a God who helps. See, the love of money and trust in God are like at two ends of a seesaw. As one goes up, the other goes down. You trust in money, you're not trusting in God. But the flip side of that is as you trust in God, you see your trust and your love for money decrease. If you trust in money, if you trust in full barns, full credit or checking accounts, full credit for that matter, if you trust in full cupboards, if you trust in full closets, if you trust in low miles, <laughs> dudes, that, this is like, oh man, I'm hearing this too because that car gets over 100,000 miles. I'm like, it's about to die. Some of y'all driving cars like 300,000 miles, just smiling, driving all over town. But then some of y'all like me, it's about to die. It's going over 100,000. If I'm trusting in low miles, if I'm trusting in my arsenal, some of you can't leave home without your sidearm. Now, we're going to pick on everybody this morning. I'm not discouraging you carrying a piece everywhere, but let me encourage you, don't trust in it. God's a whole lot more trustworthy than that. Don't trust in your arsenal. Trust in God. You can't trust in both. 
there at both ends, at two ends of a seesaw. As you decrease your trust in those things, your trust in the Lord goes up. You're depending on him instead of everything that you can see and touch with your eyes. You're having to live by faith and walk by faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 say this. Actually, I want you to turn there because I want you to see this. This is the next to last passage I'm having you go to this morning. We're about to have our supper here in just a minute. But I want you to see this passage. Paul gives a lot of, or he gives significant, I shouldn't say, airtime. shouldn't say a lot of. He gives significant airtime to not trusting in things to Timothy. Timothy is Paul's tr- protege. He's teaching him. He's his disciple And he's teaching him about how to pastor and how to lead. And one of the encouragements earlier in the book, in chapter 3, earlier in the letter, is don't let anybody who's in charge be a lover of money. The potential is for anyone, including those in charge. But it has a terrible effect when it's a leader that's driven and fueled by money. But here he gives some beautiful teaching here at the end of this letter, first letter to Timothy. In chapter 6, regarding money, verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age. Now, let me just tell you, if you're hearing that and you're thinking, yeah, the rich folk better listen up. I'm talking to likely every single person in this room. Christianity, and I would just say our culture in general, compared to the rest of the world, we're rich. You may not realize it. Some of you saying, man, I'm living hand to mouth every month. I bet you hadn't gone without a meal in a long time. A large part of the world wonders from day to day what they're eating. We could say this is to every single one of us. For the rich in this present age, us, charge them, charge us, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. It's a fragile, flimsy handrail, and it'll give out. Not it may give out, it will give out. But God, on the other hand, is solid. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, the rich in this age, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love that image. Now, Paul, that's truly living right now. That's truly living, Timothy. Now, right now in our age, somebody has a bunch of money and has all the stuff that they, creature comforts that they can possibly surround themselves with, then likely we're going to look at them and say, we're looking over their fence saying, man, they're truly living. Paul says, nope. The rich in this age are to be rich and generous in good works and generous toward one another. Now, that's truly living The encouragement here is hope and trust in God alone, not the uncertainty of riches. Mammon is untrustworthy, unlike God. Mammon is unfaithful, unlike God. Mammon is inconsistent, unlike God. Mammon is unpredictable, unlike our faithful God. Now, turn to Habakkuk. Hopefully you've taken the time to find the book this morning. I have, it's on page 876 in my Bible. I don't know if that helps anybody in here. Maybe if you have the same Bible I have, you're like, man, that really helped me. 876. The Pew Bible, I usually have a, 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 um, 
a page number from the Pew Bible, but I failed to do that for you this morning. Hopefully, you can look at the table of contents. I do want you to see this. So I want to like ideally hear pages turn to Habakkuk. Somebody pointed out to me one day recently that they don't use like real pages. They have like their phone on their or their their Bible on their phone. So they were sitting out there in the seat going on their phone, trying to make sound like a pages. It's pretty funny. So y'all make sound. You don't have to do that. I'm just kidding. Habakkuk. Scott has shared this Wednesday night. He was, it was a review this last Wednesday night, but a few weeks ago he shared um, a, a large portion of Habakkuk in the context of prayer. And I had the opportunity to teach through it with our fifth and sixth graders, and Habakkuk became a treasure to me. I, I didn't hear the whole part of the announcement that Cody made this morning about who's studying Habakkuk soon, so I hope I'm not stealing their thunder. I, I can't remember what that was, but... Habakkuk will still continue to speak, so there's no thunder to be stolen. But I want you to hear where Habakkuk is at the beginning of this letter, this, this prophecy, or this uh, book, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Habakkuk is sharing these words in a time where the nation of Israel is experiencing significant persecution and trial. They've been unfaithful for a long time, and God's judgment is on them. And at the hands of Babylon or Assyria, they are experiencing some serious violence. They are experiencing a time where, they, where salvation seems far away. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Really, Habakkuk? Justice never goes forth. God, you're not even hearing me. You're letting all these violent things happen. You're making me see iniquity. Why do you idly look at wrong? Does that sound like God? To Habakkuk, he's being merely honest, and it did. He says, the law is even paralyzed. It's not even helping. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is being seriously honest, but he doesn't sound very content. He sounds like he's looking over the neighbor's fence saying, all these things are going on. This extreme inequity is going on here. And where in the world is God in this discrepancy? And God takes him to three places. And these are treasures, people. I want you to see this. If we're really honest, there are times in your life where you're likely just like Habakkuk in verses 2 through 4. Saying, God, where in the world are you? I'm still stuck with this man. Some of y'all ladies, he hasn't changed. I hoped he would when we got married. I was sure I could change him. But he hasn't changed. He's the same joker. (laughs) Where are you? Why will you not save? I mean, it's not just the women saying that. Men might be saying that too. Lord, she hasn't changed. Parents, you might be saying, our child hasn't changed. I've been holding fast and believing. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it, but he hadn't changed. Train up a child in the way so it will go, and they will go in the right direction when they get old enough. It hadn't happened yet. They're still the same knucklehead they were years ago. You might be at the same job, and you're like Habakkuk saying, man, this thing, this job is, is terrible. This job is killing me. 
Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at the wrong of this job? There will be times where you'll be crying out like Habakkuk, and God takes Habakkuk to three places that will travel to whatever your version of the first part of Habakkuk is. Here's the first. Look among the nations, Habakkuk. The next verse. Look among the nations, Habakkuk, and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He's saying in so many words, Habakkuk, I'm always at work. I'm never idle. These things that you accuse me of, of the law being paralyzed, of me being idle toward iniquity, I am always at work. I am never idle. Look among the nations and you will see me at work. That travels for you as you have your version of the first part of Habakkuk to know first that God is never idle when you're struggling with a difficult parental situation, when you're struggling with a difficult marriage when you're struggling with a difficult town, you may not like Greenville. I enjoy it, actually. That's not a cut on Greenville. Be content where you are. As you're struggling with whatever version, know that God is always at work. He's not idle. That's the first part. The second part is in chapter 2, verse 4. The second part of that verse says, The righteous shall live by his faith. You remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's encouraging Habakkuk, Habakkuk, don't live according to what you see across the fence. Don't let that influence how you live. Live according to what you don't see that you're sure of. Be convicted about things you're hoping for that you haven't yet received. Be fueled by faith, not by your eyeballs. That's the second thing. First is I'm always at work. Second is the just shall live by faith. And the third is later in that passage in verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Know, Habakkuk, that justice is coming in my time And it will be so thorough, it will be like water covering the oceans. It will be so thorough, it will be the knowledge of the Lord covering the entire earth. This place where you think I'm being idle, this place where you think that the law has not working anymore, in my time and on my terms, all these crooked things will be straightened. Now, let's see where this leaves Habakkuk. He's in a bad way. He's discontent the first part of this book, but by the end of it, he's changed because of three things that God gave him, three essential oils. I'm always at work. You're supposed to live by faith, not by what you see, Habakkuk. And justice is coming and it's going to be thorough on my terms at my time. And let's see where it leaves him in chapter 3. Verse 17, this is good medicine. This is so good. Habakkuk, by the end of this thing, this guy, this discontent at the beginning, he sounds oh so content here. Listen to what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Though the fig tree, we're not talking about just 
beauty. He's talking about provision of some figs. Though the fig tree doesn't have any figs because there's no, no fruit on the vines. And the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food. Though there's no figs, no olives, and no food from the fields. This previously content person says, or discontent person says, Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He is the treasure. He is the carrot. He is what we can hold on to. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Man, God's ministry to this man, Habakkuk, leaves him in a place where he is so satisfied and so content with God. He didn't get any of the stuff that he wanted, but he got God. He didn't get any of the things that he cried out in the beginning, but he got God instead, and God for him becomes enough. That's the secret of contentment. God is his treasure. God is his portion. So he then can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Every week when we take this supper, that's what we're doing in some ways is we are asking the Lord We're bringing our discontentment to him. We're bringing our wants and our needs and things we fret over to him. And we're taking together a meal that's a reminder that we have absolute provision in what he's already done for us in Christ. If we never had another bite, if we never had another healthy day, if we lost all our friends and family, if everything ended for us like Job, We've got everything in what Christ has already done. This is a reminder for us each week. This tiny little wee meal is a reminder that he's enough. He's supposed to be. That's what worshipers do is consider together. Okay, he's enough. This will be enough for me this week. Let's pray and we'll distribute the elements. God, I pray that we will be this people because you have equipped us for it this morning. And because the Holy Spirit is working it in us, we can't muster contentment. We can't, of our own device, pry our eyes from the neighbor's fence. But God, we ask you, we beg you to open our eyes to the riches that we have in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. That you will be enough, that you will be our treasure, that you are the carrot. God, I pray this little meal that we're about to take here, we'll take as worshipers, confessing together as we take and eat and drink, that you're enough for us today. That we are content with what we have in an amazing high priest and perfect and final sacrifice. God, we enjoy this as an act of worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.